Help us to trust that we are always alive in you, O God. Amen. It's a joke, and especially this time of year, it is really true in my home that there are two certainties, death and taxes. <laughs> With Holy Week coming and nine sermons between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, I've been thinking a lot and writing a lot about death. And being mar married to a certified public accountant means that a lot of our evenings and weekends in addition to the workday are all about taxes. Now, why Jesus had to die during tax season, I really don't know. <laughs> but it makes our household rather busy. But the joke about death and taxes being the only certainties works because there's a truth behind them. And the truth of the matter is that none of this belongs to us. It's all a gift. Sure, maybe we've worked hard for the money that we have to pay taxes on, but none of us chose the situation into which we are born. None of us arranged for all of the circumstances that we lucked into. None of us created the economic system that we have inherited. They were all given to us and we don't get to take any of it with us. And when it comes to life, clearly, none of us chose to be born. And as I was reminded this past week, when I administered last rites to Kathy Dunn, death is a part of what it means to live. It's one of the reasons why when I get a phone call saying that someone is near death, I drop everything and get there because I have learned that death waits for no one. As much as we might want to be in control and as much as we want to think about the things that we have, like money, accomplishments, or things, the reality is that none of us are in control. And the only thing that we get to take out of this world with us is the one thing that we had with us when we entered it, the love of God. Death and taxes, they might not be fun, but they do remind us of the idols of control and possessiveness that so many of us worship. Though death may be inevitable, and property and wealth do not ultimately belong to us, our hope is that because we belong to God, death is not final. This is the promise around which our scripture readings this morning orbit. Now this is clearest in the reading from John, in which Jesus raises the dead Lazarus to life. As you heard, it's a very long text, and I suspect that in 30 or so years, as I'm closing in on retirement, that I still will not have had enough time to explore the depths of this passage. What I want to say about it right now, though, is that actually a part of the passage we did not hear read. If we had continued reading, we would have arrived at a verse that says, from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Because that's what happens when you mess with things that we take for granted, even something like death. We don't like it when the foundations shift underneath our feet. What exactly it meant that death could be overturned, the chief priests really didn't know. But they knew that it was a power beyond their ability to understand or control. And they wanted it gone. Now I mention this because in this sermon I'm going to poke some holes 
at some of the platitudes and cliches that we use when we speak about death. A lot of what people, even Christians, think about death does not come from scripture, but rather from Greek philosophy. And when we are presented with what our faith actually says about death and eternal life, some people might not like it. So feel free to wrestle with this and invite me into further dialogue. Just don't have a secret meeting about it and decide to put an end to me. <laughs> now in the Old Testament, perhaps the most well-known passage about death and resurrection is the vision that we heard from Ezekiel. The prophet is in a valley of dead and dry bones and the Lord asks him, can these bones live? Now, Ezekiel's response, it sounds very pious and holy. Oh, Lord God, you know. But it's actually a pretty weak answer. Because the obvious answer is no. Piles of dead and dry bones do not live. But Ezekiel knows enough to know that a good response to God is always a deferential one. One that leaves just a little bit of room open for God to do more than we might expect or imagine. And so he says, I don't know, God, why don't you tell me? God not only tells, but shows. Those bones rattled around as the spirit came into them and they stood again, giving a vision of hope that God would raise Israel up again, even in the midst of their destruction and exile. And I wonder where things feel dead in your life. Where do we encounter that dryness of death? Where do new life and vigor seem absurd or impossible? Maybe you're out of work and finding a way forward seems hopeless. Could be that your marriage has dried up. Perhaps you've noticed that the pews are not quite as full as they were before the pandemic and that our church's budget has gone from tight to in the negative. Maybe it's a healthcare concern or a diagnosis that has you feeling uncomfortably close to being a pile of bones. Perhaps an addiction or depression has sucked the spirit right out of you. It could be struggles in school or with friends that feel lifeless. From time to time, or even for most of the time, we all feel as the psalmist must have felt when they said, out of the depths have I called to you, O Lord. There's death all around us, both literally and figurative. Sometimes there's just no substitute for King James when we translate the Bible. This morning our translation said, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been there for four days. King James says, he stinketh. <laughs> and that's the truth sometimes life stinks and that's okay it's okay to admit that things are not okay because our hope is not in our ability to make lemonade out of lemons rather our hope is in a God whose love makes all things new in a God who raises the dead St. Teresa of Avila was a 16th century nun, and she wrote, let nothing disturb thee. All things are passing. God alone suffices. Taxes remind us that nothing truly belongs to us, and death reminds us that all things are fading away. 
But Jesus reminds us that the love of God is something that will never be taken away from us and makes us eternally alive to God. The first law of thermodynamics says that energy can never be destroyed, only changed. Well, the law of God's love says anything that is loved by God can never be destroyed, only changed. Because God is God, it would be impossible for God to love something that does not exist. Because by God's perfection, God loving it would make it exist. And so because we are loved by God, it means that we are always alive in the love of God. And this is what St. Paul is getting at in the passage we heard from Romans. You are in the Spirit since the Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit that dwells in you. That same spirit that blew through the valley and gave life to those dry bones is what animates us. That same call that Jesus made to Lazarus to come out of death is issued to each of us as well. Jesus does not say that one day later he will be resurrection and life. No, he says that he is the resurrection and the life. And this changes everything because it means that eternal life is not waiting for us after the grave. Instead, by definition, eternal life has already begun in the love of God. And this means that death is an enemy of God that distorts and disrupts this love. As Genesis teaches us, death was not a natural part of creation. It came in through the door opened by sin. And we get a hint of the unnatural and adversarial reality of death when we read that Jesus was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. Those words connote something like the snorting of a raging bull or the snarl of a prowling lion. Death is a villain that is opposed to the will of God. And in Jesus, God is working to dismantle and destroy this enemy power. But we have come to accept death as something natural. Now, this does not at all mean that we should cower in fear of death. But it does mean that the church needs to stop using such saccharine and wrong wording like having celebrations of life, instead of calling it what it is, burial of the dead. I went to another Episcopal, another Episcopal church recently for a funeral, and they called it a celebration of life. It took all I had not to go up to the priest afterwards and ask on what page in the prayer book they found this liturgy called Celebration for Life that I've never seen before. I won't even say that it was well-meaning, because avoiding the truth is never well-meaning. Death is unnatural, and God is a God of life, not death. And the other place where we really get things wrong is in thinking about our bodies and souls, which are not two separate things. That is Greek Platonist thought, not Judaism or Christianity. The souls of the dry bones are not animated. Their bodies are. Jesus does not assure Mary and Martha that their, that their brother's soul is at rest. No, his dead and stinking body is raised up. 
And that is our Christian hope. Not that one day some immaterial part of us will float away and escape the burdens of the flesh and live forever with God. No, that's a heresy called Gnosticism. Our hope is that God is making all things new, including our bodies, our broken institutions, our fallen relationships. Because if God only cared about saving our consciousness or our souls, then Jesus would have been some sort of spirit, not a Jewish man who was born of a woman and beaten and crucified. But no, the same God who created all physical things plans to redeem all physical things. God's salvation is bigger, bolder, and more audacious than we can imagine. Our hope is not that a little part of us might be saved, but rather for all of us to be made new in the full and abundant resurrection life. And the reason that we need to get this right is that too often the church sets its sights too low. We think that things like bodily resurrection are too improbable, too complicated, or too impossible for us to hope for, and so we lower the meaning of the resurrection to meet what we think is possible instead of what God has demonstrated is possible. And then the hope seeps out of other aspects of our lives as well. We start to lose hope that we're really loved. Our hope for the forgiveness of our sins begins to fade and we start to carry around excess guilt and shame. We start to lose our hope and trust that God hears our prayers and ministers to us. We even begin to lose our hope that God is real and our faith becomes impotent and disconnected from our actual lives. Once we reduce the grandeur and the scope of the resurrection, grace, mercy, life, and even God begin to leak out of our faith. God is not limited to doing what we think is necessary or probable. God is not bound by our ability to understand death or resurrection. God is not interested in redeeming only a part of us, but rather the whole of creation is being made new in the love of God. And I wonder if instead of saying, well, God will do this, but God can't do that, what if we left more open to the infinite power of God by borrowing a line from Ezekiel, and we said more often, oh, Lord God, you know, because who knows what might walk out of the tomb of impossibility if we trusted that Jesus really is the resurrection and the life.